Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Go check out Morbidly Beautiful right now for all your pop culture horror needs, including reviews, introspectives, retrospectives, top 10 lists, pretty much whatever you need, they'll have it. Go check it out now while you're listening to this episode of the podcast. Now, today's episode is going to be a little bit, I don't want to say different, I say that every week, but it is a new sort of territory. We're going to be talking about a little bit of a mythology from the land of Scandinavia. While we have talked about Scandinavia in the past, we've never really talked about the lore itself in terms of the gods and what the gods did and the mythology surrounding said gods. Can I say gods any more? Probably. And you'll probably hear it a few more times. I try to stay away from the more common aspects of legends and lore, such as, you know, Zeus and the Greek pantheon and the Romans, old gods and all that sort of stuff, because it's been done to death. But there is one I just I, I just had to cover. And if you played the recent God of War game, then you'll know what I'm talking about. And I know lately a lot of my episodes have been related back to video games, but that's because I'm a gamer, even though I hate that term. And it is easy to relate that way to these sort of topics. Today we're going to be talking about the World Serpent, or Jormungand. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. So during my research into Jormungand, I came across a whole lot of very interesting topics in the world of the Norse mythology. And we're going to go over a lot of those aspects as well. This isn't going to be solely about the world serpent, though that is the catalyst for today's topic, which is why I'm kind of focusing on that as the lead of this episode. Now the Jormungand, or again the World Serpent, is also called the Midgard Serpent for very obvious reasons, and we'll get to those reasons in just a moment. Now it is a snake or dragon who lives in the ocean that surrounds Midgard. Midgard is, well, Earth, or the visible world. Now the World Serpent is so enormous that his body forms a circle around the entirety of Midgard. It is said that he is one of the three children of Loki and the giantess Angbroda, along with Hel and Fenrir. Now Jormungand also has a bit of a history with Thor, and the two even battled, maybe on more than one occasion, and it's recounted in the prose of the Eddis. Now I'm going to read to you right now that story. Well, at least a abstracted translated version of it so uh, how accurate it is i can't guarantee but it does come from an education website so here's hoping it goes as such this is the prose edda of snorri sturlson thor went out of asgard disguised as a youth and came in the evening to a giant called hymir thor stayed there that night at daybreak hymir got up and dressed and prepared to go sea fishing in a rowboat Thor sprang up and asked Hymir to let him go, rowing with him. Hymir said that he would not be much help, as he was a scrap 
of a young fellow, quote, You'll catch a cold if I sit as long and as far out to the sea as I usually do. Thor, however, said he would be able to row a long way out from shore and that it wasn't certain that he would be the first to demand to row back. He became so angry with the giant that he was ready to set the hammer ringing on his head. He controlled himself, however, as he intended to try his strength in another place. He asked Hymir what they were to take as bait, but Hymir told him to get his own. Then Thor turned away to where he saw a herd of oxen belonging to Hymir. He selected the biggest ox, one called Sky Bellower, and struck off its head. Thor took the ox head on board, sat down in the stern, and rowed. Hymir thought they made rapid progress from his rowing. Hymir sat in the bow, and together they rowed until they came to a place where Hymir was accustomed to sit and catch flat fish. Thor said he wanted to row much further out, and they had another bout of fast rowing. Then Hymir said that they had come so far out that it would be dangerous to sit there on account of the Midgar serpent. Thor, however, declared his intention of rowing for a bit yet, and did so, and Hymir was not at all pleased at that. When Thor shipped his oars, he made ready a very strong line and a large hook. He baited the hook with the ox head and flung it overboard. The Midgar serpent snapped at the ox head, and the hook stuck fast in the roof of its mouth. It jerked away so hard that both Thor's fists knocked against the gunwale. Then Thor grew angry and exerted all his divine strength, dug in his heels so hard that both legs went through the boat until he was dragging his heels on the sea bottom. He drew the serpent up on board, staring straight at it. The serpent glared back, belching poison. The giant Hymir turned pale with fear when he saw the serpent and the sea trembling in and out of the vessel too. At that very moment that Thor gripped his hammer and raised it aloft, the giant fumbled for his bait knife and cut Thor's line off of the gunwale. The serpent sank back into the sea. Thor flung his hammer after it, and people say that it struck the head off in the waves. But the truth is that the Midgar serpent is still alive and lying in the ocean. Thor clenched his fist and gave Hymir a box on the ear so that he fell overboard head first, but Thor himself waded ashore. Upon other research of that story, the giant Hymir did grow a little bit fearful because of the threat of Ragnarok. Now we all know what Ragnarok is, it's more or less the Norse version of the end of the world, and that the world serpent was going to be the catalyst for that. And such, the giant was so fearful of Thor inciting Ragnarok that he decided to let the world serpent go, even if Thor did crack it on the head afterwards. Nevertheless, the story continues, with some saying that Thor and the Midgard serpent are fated to slay each other. Now it is likely that the Jormungand, or the world serpent, or the Midgard serpent, likely was already featured in the religion of the original Germanic tribes, as evidenced by his existence in later pre-Christian religions of different branches of the Germanic peoples. For example, continental Germans attributed earthquakes to his movements well into the Middle Ages. Now, there's a bunch of names that I mentioned earlier, such as Midgard. So, 
Let's just look into that for a brief moment, shall we? See what Midgard's all about, so you have a better understanding of this world serpent. Midgard is one of the nine worlds, yes, nine worlds of the Norse mythology and an important concept in the pre-Christian worldview of all of the Germanic peoples. It is the inhabited world and roughly corresponds to the modern English word and concept of civilization. It's the only one of the nine worlds that primarily is located in the visible world. The others, while they may intersect with the visible world at various points, are first and foremost invisible locations. The name Midgard means middle enclosure, and it kind of has a double meaning. The first meaning of the word refers to civilization's position in the middle of an otherwise wild world, which is reflected on the cosmological plane by Midgard's being surrounded by the uninhabited wilderness of Jotunheim, the world of the often hostile giants. This is akin to the way in which the continents are surrounded by the ocean, which is, in the ancient Germanic perspective, also teeming with giants. This is where the serpent, the world serpent, comes in. Jormungand lives in the sea and encircles the terrestrial Midgard and the wilderness at its borders, and Aegir and Ron dwell in the same watery depths and claim the lives of unfortunate seafarers. You might call this part of the world's meaning horizontal. The second and vertical sense of the word meaning refers to Midgard's position below Asgard, the world of the Asir gods and goddesses, and above the underworld. This vertical axis is represented by the world tree Yggdrasil, which we'll get to in a moment, and that holds Asgard in its upper branches, Midgard at the base of its trunk, and the underworld among its roots. Both of these senses of the words meaning ultimately refer to Midgard's place in the psychogeographical location between the Innigrand and Utengrand, one of the most important concepts in the ancient Germanic worldview. That which is Innigard, inside the fence, is orderly, law-abiding, and civilized, while that which is Utengard, beyond the fence, is chaotic and wild. This applies both to the geographical plane and the human psyche. Thoughts and actions can be Innengard or Utengard, just as readily as spatial locations. Asgard, the enclosure of the Azir, is the divine model of Inengard, while Jotunheim is the homeland of the giants. It is the model for the Utengard. Midgard is, once again, somewhere in the middle, but as the guard element in the name implies, Midgard is, at least in theory, striving to be more like Asgard, more ordered according to the divine model upon which it is patterned. Now, it's said when the gods gave the world its initial shape, they slew the giant Ymir, and created various parts of the world from his body parts. In order to protect Midgard and humanity from the giants, they built a fence around Midgard out of Ymir's eyebrows. Building fences around farms repeated this paradigmatic act, marking off that which was within the fences as Inengard, and that which was outside the fences Utengard. During Ragnarok, the destruction of the cosmos, Midgard sinks into the sea along with everything else in the universe, which is always fun to know, isn't it? Again, we mentioned a whole lot of different things while discussing Midgard, more specifically, the Nine Worlds, and we mentioned a couple such as Jotunheim. Well, while we're here, we might as well take a look at the other eight worlds. These worlds are described as the homelands of various types of beings found in pre-Christian worldview of the Norse and other Germanic peoples. They're held in the branches and roots of the world tree, or Yggdrasil, although none of the sources 
for our present knowledge of Norse mythology and religion describe exactly where in and around Yggdrasil they're located. The existence of the Nine Worlds is mentioned in passing in one of the poems in the Poetic Edda. However, no source gives a list of exactly what the worlds are comprised of. Based on the kinds of beings found in Norse mythology and the reference to their homelands and various literary sources, however, we can compile the following tentative reconstruction. Midgard, which we just discussed, is the world of humanity. Asgard is the world of the Azir, which is the gods. Vanaheim, the world of the Vanir, which is another tribe of gods and goddesses. Jutenheim, the world of the giants. Niflheim, which is a primordial world of ice. Muspelheim, which is a primordial world of fire. Alfheim, which is the world of the elves. Nidavellir is the world of the dwarves. And Hell, which is the world of, well, the dead, the underworld. And it is often associated with the goddess Hell, H-E-L, not H-E-L-L. With the exception of Midgard, these are all primarily invisible worlds, although they can at times become manifested in particular aspects of the visible world. For example, Jotunheim overlaps with the physical wilderness, Hell with the grave, and Asgard with the sky. Again, while we don't know what exactly the spiritual or magical significance of the number 9 was, it is clear that that number had such a significance for the pre-Christian Germanic peoples. Philologist Rudolf Simic offers the following summary. 9 is the magical number of the Germanic tribes. Documentation for the significance of the number 9 is found in both myth and cult. In Odin's self-sacrifice, he hung for 9 nights on the windy tree. There are 9 worlds to the Niflhelm, Heimdall was born to nine mothers, Freyr had to wait for nine nights for his marriage to Gerd, and eight nights, or nine days, was the time of the betrothal given, also in the Thrymaskiva. Literary embellishments in the Eddas similarly used the number nine. Skothi and Njoror lived alternatively for nine days in the Nauntin and the Thrymaskiva. Every ninth night, Eight equally heavy rings dripped from the ring Draupnir. Mengluth has nine maidens to serve her, and Igar had as many daughters. Thor can take nine steps at the Ragnarok after his battle with the Midgar Serpent before he falls down dead. Sacrificial feasts lasting nine days are mentioned for both Uppsala and Lyre, and at these supposedly nine victims were sacrificed each day. Simic does speculate that this number's importance could be derived from the lunar calendar's 27 days being multiple of 9. Interesting theory. A lot of superstitions do evolve and revolve around the calendar and sort of astronomical or cosmological anomalies or patterns or whatever. The point here is that the number 9 did mean something. We just don't know what. Now the last thing I do want to touch on here before we call it a day is... Yggdrasil, which is the world tree, kind of binds everything together. So let's just take a quick little look at what the world tree has to offer in this form of mythology regarding Midgard and the Midgard serpent and the nine worlds. Yggdrasil is described as a mighty tree whose trunk rises at the geographical center of the north spiritual cosmos. The rest of that cosmos, including the nine worlds, is arrayed around it and held together by its branches and roots which connect the various parts of the cosmos to one another. 
Because of this, the well-being of the cosmos depends on the well-being of Yggdrasil. When the tree trembles, it signals the arrival of Ragnarok, the destruction of the universe. The first element in Yggdrasil's name, the Yg, means terrible, and it is one of the countless names of the god Odin and indicates how powerful and fearsome the Vikings perceived him to be. The second element, Drasil, means horse, so Yggdrasil means horse of Odin, a reference to the time when the terrible one sacrificed himself to discover the runes. The tree was his gallows and bore his limp body, which the Norse poetic imagination described metaphorically as a horse and a rider. In Old Norse literature, Yggdrasil is commonly said to be an ash tree, but at other times it is said that no one knows the species to which the magnificent tree belongs. As with so many aspects of Norse mythology and religion, there doesn't seem to have been any airtight consensus on this during the Viking Age. In the words of the Old Norse poem, Beluspa, Yggdrasil is the, quote, friend of the clear sky, unquote so tall that its crown is above the clouds. Its heights are snow-capped like the tallest mountains and the, quote, dews that fall in the dales, unquote, slide off its leaves. Havamal adds that the tree is windy, surrounded by frequent fierce winds at its heights. Quote, no one knows where its roots run, unquote, because they stretch all the way down to the underworld, which no one except shamans can see before he or she dies. The gods hold their daily council at the tree. Numerous animals are said to live among Yggdrasil's stout branches and roots. Around its base lurks the dragon, Nidhogg, and several snakes, who gnaw at its roots. An unnamed eagle perches in his upper branches and a squirrel. Ratatosker, also called Drilltooth, scurries up and down the trunk, conveying the dragon's insults to the eagle and vice versa. That's adorable. Meanwhile, four stags, Dane, Dvalin, Dunir, and Durathor, graze on the tree's leaves. Amusing though some of these animals and their activities may be, they hold a deeper significance. The image of the tree being nibbled away little by little by several beasts expresses its mortality, and along with it, the mortality of the cosmos that depends on it. The Old Norse sources provide vivid but contradictory accounts of the number of arrangements of the roots and wells beneath the base of Yggdrasil's trunk. According to the poem Grimsmal, Yggdrasil has three main roots, one planted in Midgard, the world of mankind, one in Jutunheim, the world of the giants, and one in Hell, the underworld. Beluspa mentions only one wall beneath the tree, the well of Erd, or the well of fate. However, in Snorri Sturlson's Prose Edda, he holds that there are actually three wells beneath the tree, one for each of its roots. The well of Erd, according to him, is not below Yggdrasil, as it is in the Veluspa. It's actually in the sky, and the root that grows out of it bends upwards into the sky. The well of Erd is where the gods hold their daily council meetings. The second well is called Virgilmir, perhaps bubbling cauldron or roaring kettle and it's the body of water beneath the second root which stretches into Niflheim, the world of primal ice. This is the root that the Nidhogg choose. The third well is that of the wise being Mimir, and it's the root that lies in the realm of the giants. Here as elsewhere, Snorri is probably introducing an artificial 
systemization of his own invention that didn't exist in the Viking Age, Snorri wrote centuries after the Vikings. However, some of the elements he includes may have been drawn from legitimate sources that are now lost to us. For instance, Yggdrasil was sometimes called Miamathor, post of Mimir, which demonstrates that there was some particular connection between Mimir and the tree, and surely also the well that's frequently mentioned in connection with Mimir. But what about the nine worlds themselves? How are they arranged around Yggdrasil? The Old Norse sources never tell us, and for that matter, they never tell us which worlds comprise the nine in the first place. Given the lack of systemization or codification that characterizes all of Norse mythology and religion, and the tolerance for fluidity, ambiguity, and even contradiction that it implies, it is doubtful that there was ever a map or a diagram of images of the nine worlds and their arrangement in which all of the pagan Norse believed. Despite all that, there are some clues in the sources that might enable us to construct a tentative and partial scheme of where some of the nine worlds would have been generally thought to have been located. They seem to be arranged along two axes, one vertical and the other horizontal. The vertical axis, which would correspond to Yggdrasil's trunk with Asgard in the highest branches, Midgard on the ground, and below that we have Hel. The horizontal axis would be based on the distinction the Vikings made between the Inengard and the Utengard. Thus, Asgard would be right over the trunk of the tree, Midgard around the trunk, and therefore in the middle of both these axes, and Jutunheim would surround Midgard, and thereby be further away from the trunk. As for the other worlds, nobody really has any idea. In any case, we can see how vital to the Norse worldview Yggdrasil was felt to be by the number of earthly trees the Viking treated as representations of the Great World Tree. Adam of Bremen describes a particularly majestic one near the temple of Uppsala in Sweden. Farmsteads were customarily designed around such a tree, making the farmstead a miniature reproduction of the sacred spiritual cosmos. Now that's all I have for you today. I really do hope you enjoyed this episode. My name is Casey, and if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. That allows reviews anyways. Any five-star ones that I see will be read out on the show. So if you do leave one on kind of an obscure source, or one that I might not check that often, like the three or four I just listed, feel free to drop me a line at any social media, and I'll find that review and read it for you on the show. If you do want to catch me on social media, you can do so at HorrorShotsProd on Twitter. That's prod is in production. On Instagram at Ominous Origins Pod, or on Facebook at Horror Shots. You could also leave a review there if you felt so inclined. Lastly, feel free to check out my Redbubble store for any merch you might be interested in, and any sales to support the show, in a financial way. So that's always good as well, especially in these hard times where I've been out of work for four months now? Three months? I've lost track of time completely. Regardless, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next week.